You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? It is great to see you. I got to tell you, I mean, every Wednesday, I mean, I am literally counting down the minutes until I get to be here with you. And so I am so grateful that you guys came out and, um, and, and all of that, and you, you're wearing masks, and I, I so appreciate it. And I, I, I take mine off right before I come up, and I have to, like usually when they show this bumper, I have to take it off because I have this, you know, there's like this new problem that people face, and that is you wear the mask, and then it fogs up your glasses, and then you're like running into things and whatnot. And anyway, these are all like these are all problems that are going to go away in the future. But anyway, <clears throat> I'm so glad that you're here. Yeah. All right. I backed into that. Yeah. I'll clap for that. We'll clap for that. And uh, so uh, several years ago, uh, my wife and I, we went on a cruise, the one and only cruise that we've been on, because I realized on that one cruise that I don't like cruises. And so anyway, we went there and we spent a day in uh, St. John, and we were told the snorkeling there was the best, best place. Uh, the beach was very nice. But so we go there, and while Carrie is getting settled on the beach, she sends me to get the snorkeling gear. And I don't know if you've ever been snorkeling before, but you need basically 800 items to go snorkeling, and I needed two of each. So I'm getting all of this stuff, and so it's like this little um, hut kind of thing that uh, you got to get it. And then right across, there's this other hut that they're making french fries. And so as I got all the stuff, and you got to get flippers and goggles and this breathing tube that makes you sound like Darth Vader. And, and then, uh, so I get all that stuff, but then I'm like, you know, you know, a little, what, what could, how could fries hurt? And so I, I get the fries, <clears throat> and I get this big order of fries. So I've got all the stuff, and then I'm holding the, the fries, and I'm walking to like our little home base where Carrie has established us on, on the beach, and that's when I was nearly killed. Um, and here's what happened. I don't know if you've ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, um, which I have, and it was just like that. Uh, and so local birds started attacking me. And I mean, literally biting me. I, I saw blood, I was bleeding, and I, there was, I had no protection because I'm carrying all of this useless gear that cannot help you in a bird attack. And, and then, according to my wife, I was screaming like a girl. And, uh, well, anyway, the birds flew away. I had fallen to the ground, uh, and I was rolling on the sand to try to stop the bleeding. And then it turns out it wasn't blood. It was the ketchup for my french fries. And uh, so that was, anyway, it all happened because of the fries. And, and the moral of the story is, carbs will kill you. That's really what we're trying to say. So, but <laughs> here's the thing. <clears throat> When that attack went down, I mean, honestly, I just wish there was something that I could have had that could have blocked me and kind of protected me in some way and got me to where it is that I was headed. And, and if you're engaged in any kind of battle, uh, you need gear that's going to help you win, something that's going to uh, protect you and something that's going to allow you to keep gaining ground. Now, I bring this up because we're in this series on the armor of God based on this famous section that the Apostle Paul talks about at the very end of the book of Ephesians. Now, and if you've been here, and this is week four of six, and so if you've been with us, you already know this, 
Uh, if you haven't been with us, this is going to be review. For those of you that know this now, I'm going to repeat it so that now you're, you're going to have it memorized. So the Apostle Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem. He had gone through a couple of different trials. He didn't feel like he was getting any justice. So as a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to Caesar. So he appeals to Caesar. They say, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. And so he gets sent to Rome to meet with uh, the emperor. And so if you read the book of Acts, chapters 21 to 28, that'll tell you the story of his arrest, how he, all the trials, him appealing to Caesar, him taking this, uh, this, this ship that ends up getting wrecked and he ends up on this island. Anyway, he finally makes it to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. But as you can imagine, you know, the emperor of Rome is a busy guy. So he's actually for two years waiting for his day in court. So they put him essentially on house arrest where he's chained to a Roman guard. And it's during those two years that Paul writes four epistles that are found in the New Testament. He writes the book of Ephesians that we're going to look at, the book of Colossians, the book of Philemon, and then this other epistle uh, in, that's there called Philippians. And so he's chained to this Roman guard. and he's, It kind of serves as some inspiration for him as he's looking at the, the armor that he's wearing, and it describes how it relates to Christians. And so the first week, if you were with us, we talked about the belt of truth and that a belt isn't really a piece of armor, but it's what holds everything together. And this belt of truth, that even when our world is falling apart, uh, that truth can hold us together. It's the basis for everything we do. We put on truth. We walk in truth. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. It's what protects your heart, which according to the Bible... Uh, we talk about loving people with all of our heart, that it speaks of your will, your decisions. It also protects your gut, which in the ancient world uh, was the seat of emotions, where we talk about that too. We talk about, you know, I've got this kind of gut feeling. I've got butterflies in my stomach. That th this comes, it comes from, to us from the ancient world. And sometimes if we're not careful, our emotions will work against us. And the breastplate of righteousness helps us in that. The third piece of armor we talked about last week, and we talked about having your feet fitted with the preparation of the gospel, that soldiers wore shoes in that time that were like cleats at the bottom, that you could stand firm and keep taking ground while your feet were protected. And that brings us to the piece of armor, number four, that we're going to look at today, and it's in Ephesians chapter six. It'll be up on the screen. It'll be in your outline, but here's what we start. In fact, we're going to take it. We've been doing this every week. We take a running start. We come back and read all the passages together. So we're going to start in verse 10. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of, uh, of the gospel of peace, and verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, if you pause there, and give me your attention. There's a shift that happens here, and I know that if we're not reading carefully, we can miss it. The first three pieces of armor, Paul says, having these things on. And, and you'll see it as in verse 14, 
having girded your waist with truth, having put on the blessed breastplate of righteousness, having shod your, your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But now he says something different. He says, now you've got to take up the shield of faith. You've got to take the helmet of salvation. You've got to take the sword of the spirit. The idea is the first three are not things that we take, put on and take off. We keep them on at all times. But the last three are things that we take up as needed. It's like a baseball player. And I don't know about you, but I am way more excited than I probably should be that baseball is starting. And it, I'm, I'm so excited. And uh, not that I even think my team's going to do well at this point. Um, I would watch Little League if they televised it. Uh, I'm just, I'm so excited they're going to put something on. But a baseball player keeps his uniform on at all times. But he picks up a bat or grabs a glove depending on the situation. And that is what Paul is talking about. These first three pieces of armor stay on us at all times. The last three we take up as needed. And that brings us to what Paul talks about in verse 16, about taking up the shield of faith. Now, Roman soldiers use two types of shields. And it's actually two different Greek words that would describe them. One was a small, round shield that you kind of see uh, in, in pictures or whatnot. They're usually made of metal. They are, they're small. They're, they, there's two straps, if you can imagine, like Captain, America, uh, Captain America's shield. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's not made of, it wasn't made of vibranium. Uh, was it vibranium that it was made out of? Uh, okay, very good. So nerd point uh, for me um, and for you because you confirmed it. So two points for you. And um, so now it was relatively lightweight and it was really used in close quarters for hand-to-hand -hand combat. The other was called a thurius. And this is the, this is the, this is the shield that Paul is talking about here. It was two and a half feet wide and it was four and a half feet wide, uh, high. It was basically the size of a door, if you can imagine that. And it was made of wood, and it was usually covered either with metal or with oiled leather, and then it was dunked in water. And, and the point is, is that it was big enough for a soldier to hide behind. And then when there were moments where they were really going to advance, the, these shields would then were able to interlock so that soldiers could then form a wall with their shields and continue to advance. Now, when Paul says to take up the shield of faith, he's not talking about the faith. When we talk, and there's a lot of talk in the scriptures, it talks about the faith, and what it refers to is the sum total of Christian beliefs. That's not what he's talking about. When he talks about taking up the shield of faith, uh, this, the Greek word is the word uh, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, and it refers to the act of believing. It talks about uh, faith as far as trusting God, stepping out in faith, and there is so much misunderstanding about faith, about what faith is, how faith works, what faith looks like, and how to access faith. And what I want to do in our time together is essentially do a deep dive on this topic and talk about how faith operates like a shield in our lives. And so if you're a note taker, here's number one in your notes, and that is the shield of faith is trust beyond the visible. It's trust beyond the visible. Now, here's the challenge that we have with faith is that a lot of times when we talk about, oh, I'm full of faith or stepping out in faith or we're growing in faith, we think of it a lot of times as like an exercise in emotionalism. And, you know, I'm feeling pumped up, so I'm full of faith. I'm feeling bummed out. I don't have faith. 
And so we, we, we need to think of faith as putting truth into action. That we believe something so much that we'll put our full weight and trust in it. Now, so let me give you an example. So a few years ago, I was leading a small group here at Calvary. And uh, it was at someone's house. And we used to have these white chairs. And um, they got all, well, I'll tell you the story. And you're going to, now I understand why you got rid of them. So we used to have these white chairs that we would lend out to people uh, when they were leading small groups and whatnot. And so in the middle of the small group that I was leading, one of the chairs collapsed. And the girl that was sitting on it, I mean, it just, the thing just went flat. And, and she was kind of shaken up. And she was very embarrassed thinking that it was her, and which probably wasn't. But the thing that I found so interesting, and this is the part, is that the moment that chair collapsed, everyone stood up. Well, we wanted to see how she was doing. But it wasn't just that. Everyone stood up and wouldn't sit down again. And, and then we're like, all right, every, are you okay? Everybody's okay. You know, you need a Band-Aid, you know, whatever. She's fine. And then what happens is this. This is what I found so interesting, is that then when everybody sat down again, they were kind of sitting on the edge of the seat. You ever, you ever have a situation like that where you sit down, maybe one of your kids is like, let's have a tea party. And they have these little chairs in their room that are basically like for action figures. And then like you're going to sit down, but you know you can't plop down or the thing is going to shatter. And so you just kind of do one of these little things like, oh, yeah, that's great. And then what you're getting a little bit of like a, like a quad workout because this all starts burning after man, like, just pour the tea already. You know what I mean? And so you're, you're in that, you're having that moment. Why? Because you don't have faith that the chair can really hold you. That's what faith is. It's acting in accordance with the truth and that we believe the truth so much that we will put our full weight in it, our full trust in it. You believe the chair is going to hold you. And if you don't, you will not let go of control. So how do you get more faith? So let's talk about a passage that gets quoted all the time. And almost every time I've heard it quoted, it's being misquoted and certainly misapplied. So let's talk about it. Here's one. Uh, Jesus says, and he's saying this to his disciples, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, there are some verses that Christians love to take out of context, and this has got to be one of the greatest hits um, of that. And I believe that because we take this verse out of context, why Christians feel defeated all the time. So let's talk about when the context of this verse. Jesus has been transfigured. They have this incredible moment. Um, the disciples then are trying, they, they, the, these, this dad comes to the disciples with his son that's demon-possessed, and he says, can you cast the demon out of my son? They are unable to. And they're very frustrated that they're not able to. Jesus then casts, him, casts this demon out, and they say, we don't understand why we couldn't do it. And he says, well, because of your unbelief. And then he says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain to move, and it, and, and it will. Now, why does Jesus mention a mountain if he's talking about a mustard seed? And herein lies the key to understanding this teaching that Jesus is giving. They were standing in front of a fortress, called Herodium. In fact, there's a picture of it 
And if you come to, uh, with us to Israel, um, we will, we'll, we'll come by here. Now, I want you to understand, uh, King uh, Herod the Great, who died a couple of years after Jesus was born, he built 11 fortresses in, during his reign. And uh, when we go to Israel, I mean, we'll actually for sure visit a couple of them. He was an incredible builder. He was also completely paranoid. Uh, he thought his wife Miriam was conspiring against him, so he had her killed. But then he missed her, so he built a statue of her and put her in the house. Like, I don't really understand how that relationship worked afterwards. And um, he thought his kids were conspiring, so he had them all killed. And uh, so now Herodium is essentially a mountain. And what he did was he, uh, almost like he scoops out the insides of this mountain and builds a fortress inside of it. I mean, it's really just, this is an incredible feat of architecture that, that he built. Um, and you'll see another one uh, in an area called Masada um, in, the, in the southern area of Israel. And eventually, this is where Herod was buried. He was buried in Herodium. And so they're standing in front of this fortress that used to be a mountain, but the mountain was moved. It was hollowed out to make way for the fortress. And Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain as well. Now, one more thing I need you to know that's important. Why does Jesus pick a mustard seed? And by the way, I mean, a mustard seed is just, and you can, you know, if you want to do something biblical next time you're at Publix, buy a little jar of, of mustard seeds. I mean, they are tiny. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I mean, they, they are just, they are really, really small. I mean, like the little thing, what do they put on a Kaiser roll? What's that called? Poppy seeds. Seed. Thank you, my wife. She's, she's, she's in it. She's in the zone. And so, I mean, it's like you can fit like 10 mustard seeds inside of a poppy seed. Well, anyway, uh, I mean, really, really small. But why doesn't he say, if you have faith like a piece of dirt, if you have faith like a speck of dust, if you have faith like a grain of sand, he doesn't say that. He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you know why? Because a mustard seed is incredibly small. But a mustard seed grows into this tree bush kind of thing that is 20 feet tall. The point is, is that this little kind of seed is able to grow into something bigger when it is exercised. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's, sh he's showing them the mountain, Herodium. And he says, do you see what the height of power, money, and innovation can create? And he says, well, the smallest type of faith can topple that. The tiniest bit of stepping out in faith and obedience to God is more powerful than any human structure, any human power, or any human plan because it's this seed of faith that keeps growing. And, and, and I hear Christians say this all the time. They'll say, well, I'm just praying for a mustard seed of faith. Listen, if you are a Christian, you've already got it. You've already got the mustard seed. Now it's time to put that mustard seed to use. You got to water it. You got to work it and watch it grow. And the only way that it grows is by actually stepping out in faith and trusting God. That's the only way that faith grows. Faith doesn't grow when you're idle. 
Faith only grows when you are actively trusting God in your life. And it doesn't matter what area of your life it is, whether it's in your relationships, whether it's in your finances, your career, or your future. Faith only grows when we act on the truths of God that we know. And so if you say, I want my faith to grow, then grow in your understanding of God's truths and put those truths into practice. And here's what you will become, a giant of faith. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, and you can read that later, and um, in fact, come the fall, we are going to spend the entire rest of the year studying this amazing book of Hebrews. Uh, We're going to spend the next, we'll spend a few months looking at it. But every person in Hebrews 11 who is revered for their faith is revered because they trusted God and acted on the truths of God that they knew to be true. And that's when he talks about, and so, but well, then why is it a shield? Well, that's what we're going to talk about next. So, number two, if you're a note taker, the shield of faith is protection in response to obedience. Have you ever, let me, let me say it this way. Have you ever gotten in trouble for doing the right thing? Like, I mean, you are really trying to do the right thing and it got you in trouble and you're like, if I didn't even try to do the right thing, things would have been fine. But because I did the right thing, now somehow there's, now I'm in more trouble than I was. And, and this, this happens to us as Christians. I mean, this happened to me last year. I was speaking at this conference that I was hosting for pastors in Orlando. And so we had pastors from all over the country there. And because of the crazy schedule that I had, it was, I mean, it was morning to night. Um, I ate lunch and dinner at this little restaurant that they had in the hotel, and also because kids ate free. That was the other reason. And uh, so on the last day that we're there, um, I get to the restaurant, and I order a Coke Zero like I had ordered every day that I was there. Now, let me just say, um, I don't drink it a lot anymore, but I love Coke Zero. I think it's a little taste of heaven. Um, It really is, and I'm going to tell you why. I know I'm glad you agree, but let me tell you why is because it tastes just like Coke, but there's no calories. That's what heaven is going to be like. I want you to think about that. Imagine biting into cake zero. Imagine having french fries zero. Enjoying a Twinkie zero. With your double cheeseburger with bacon zero. And, uh, and anyway, that's going to happen someday, but I digress. So I get to the restaurant and I order a Coke zero, and the guy says to me, we don't serve Coke zero. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and he's like, I'm like, sir, listen, I've been at this hotel. This is my fourth day here. And I've been ordering Coke Zero every meal. Truth be told, even in between, I've snagged a couple. And, but they, were, they, they never brought me like a can. They would just fill it up and then bring it to me. And he's like, sir, I don't know what to tell you. We don't have Coke Zero in this hotel. And I'm like, sir, now mind you, the night before, I had told my wife, I was drinking, I'm like, Kara, this is like the best Coke Zero ever. This is the best. It tastes just, I was drinking 93 octane Coke. And I didn't, like, of course, of course. And I didn't even know it. And I'm like, you know, this is what I get. They're trying to do the right thing and trying to, anyway. And here's the thing. And this is how it works, right? You start trying to do the right thing. You start believing God. You're trying to honor him with your choices in your life. And what happens? It's what we read. He says, you take up the shield of faith. And then it's like there's these fiery darts that start getting hurled in your 
direction. Why? Because you're trying to take ground. You're trying to make some changes. You're trying for things to be better. You're trying to do things God's way. And I think this is one of the most important things about faith for us to understand is that faith is not passive. Faith implies that you're stepping out. Faith implies that you're doing something. That's why the shield metaphor is so powerful. You don't use the shield for the entire battle. You use that big shield, that thurios shield, when you decide that you're going to storm the enemy's stronghold. And it's when things, listen, when you decide you're really going to change your life, you're really going to walk with God, you're really going to make things light, right in your marriage, you're really going to step out and trust God, that's when the fiery darts start getting thrown in your direction. Because that's when our enemy, Satan, he starts hurling everything that he's got. Paul talks about this internal battle that happens in Romans chapter 7. He says it this way. He says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law in my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. You see, Satan's main objective is to keep you from coming to know Jesus as your Savior. If that fails, his other objective is to make you as ineffective as possible as a Christian. And if both of those things fail, then his last course of action is to fire all of those arrows that he's got in your direction. And listen, and here's the strategy, and it's a brilliant strategy. The strategy is you get hit with enough arrows that you stop advancing and some people will start blaming God for the pain that comes from the arrows that they're getting hit with. And we'll say, I'm trying to do what's right and God isn't making it easy. How can God say he loves me if my life is so hard? And here's the reason. They are called fiery darts or literally fiery arrows. And it's because of what fire does. Satan sends the fire to burn you and destroy you. And God at times will allow the fire into your life to transform you. Because like a precious metal, when a smelter puts metal into the fire, you know what it does? It, all it does is remove the impurities. You see, when you think about someone like Joseph in, in the Old Testament, that he was sold into slavery by his brothers at age 17, and, he sp and, and we read the story. He spends the next 13 years of his life wondering, how in the world does this happen to me? I mean, I mean God's called me, and I, I've had these dreams, and I have this thing that I thought God had put in my heart to do, and now he finds himself working for Potiphar, and then that whole thing goes sideways, finds himself in the jail, gets put in charge of the jail. He talks to a couple guys that work for Pharaoh. He's like, listen, man, remember me, remember me. And through an amazing series of circumstances, God makes him second in command in all of Egypt when a famine is about to hit so that his entire family could be saved. And here's what I find so amazing. At the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, Joseph's father, he had 12 sons. And what he's doing is he's giving each of his kids what's called the patriarchal blessing. He's putting his hands on his, on his children and he's giving them the blessing. This is who you are. This is what I see in you. I'm the person who knows you best. And I'm going to speak words of life into your life. And he goes through all of his kids. And then he gets to child number 11, who's Joseph. And Jacob says these words to him. And listen to what he says. He says this. 
Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Jacob looks at those, he says, this is what I want you to understand, Joseph. Those 13 years of your life, here's what it was. There's an enemy, and he was firing all of those arrows at your life. And you continue to trust God, and that's why you find yourself in the position that you're in, transforming a nation, saving your family. That's why at the end, listen, Joseph was not handling this all that well. I mean, to a degree he was, but he was upset with his brothers. He gets this blessing. And his brothers, after Jacob dies, they're like, are you going to kill us? And he says this to them when they say, hey, you're going to do some evil to us. He says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. Listen, when the arrows are headed in your direction, Satan wants to burn you and destroy you, and God is using it to refine you. Last thing I want to tell you is that the shield of faith is God's presence in tough times. Listen, being in, in, in any kind of battle is tough, but we want to make sure that we are fighting the right battle and struggling for victory over things that matter. When King David was on the run from his son, Sol- uh, from his son Absalom, David had this rogue son named Absalom who had decided that he was going to take the kingdom away from his dad. And so David writes this beautiful song when he's on the run. It's not the most creative title. It's called Psalm 3. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful song, and here's what he says. He said, Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. It's a, it's a Hebrew word that just means pause and reflect. That's what everybody's saying. Okay. New thought. Here's what David says. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. David remembers that God is a shield, not just any shield. It's what another translation says that in that it translates that same Hebrew passage. You are not. You are a shield around me. If you had a shield, it was only covering your front side. Nothing was covering your back. He says, God, you're a shield all around me. Even the things, even the attacks that I can't see, you're helping me. There's something amazing, as I mentioned in the open, that Roman soldiers were able to do. Roman soldiers were able to interlock these shields and form a wall. And then the walls became a almost offensive weapon to take ground and bring victory. And this is why, the reason is that because Christianity is something that is impossible to do alone. We have to interlock our shields to do things that really matter. And a lot of times, listen, we're praying for God to remove us from the battle. And he's saying, listen, I'm not going to remove you from the battle, but here's what I'll do. I'm a shield about you, and I'm going to protect you in the battle. And I'm going to bring some people around you who are headed in the same direction as you. You're going to interlock your shields, and that's going to help you in the fight. When Jesus was being baptized, signifying the beginning of his ministry, that 
Jesus goes into the water. As he comes out, the, the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and then the Father spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well pleased, a perfect picture of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit descending like a dove. What happens right after that? The devil shows up and tempts him because that's the way it works. Listen, if you say, if you want to go along with the ways of our culture, Satan probably isn't going to bother you that much. He has no need to. But when you decide to get into the fight and do something that matters, then things begin to change. In fact, the apostle Peter would say it this way as he looks on everything that's happened as he walks with Jesus, and here's what he says. Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You see, when you're doing what God has called you to do, there's no guarantee that it's going to be easy. There's no guarantee that it's going to be pain-free. There is a promise, though. The promise is that it's the promise of God's presence we're engaged when we are engaged in the battles that we ought to engage in. And the proof that God is with us is not that it's easy. It's the promise that God will bring victory into our lives and do what we never thought possible on our own. And you know what that takes? A change of perspective. I close with this. In the book of 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria is at war with the king of Israel. And what he finds out is that every time the king of Syria tries to do something against the king of Israel, the king of Israel is there. And he comes to the army and he says, I want to know who's a traitor among us. And one of his chief men says, it's not that. It's that there's this prophet in Israel who, who knows. He knows the things that you whisper to your wife when you're in bed. And he says, well, I've got to go see this guy. So he takes an army to go find Elisha, the prophet. Well, I want you to imagine you open your door and there's an entire army outside. Whoever opened the door is probably not going to be doing well. Like, holy smokes, what is going on here? And they're like, we're here to see your boss. So the servant of Elisha says, uh, there's an army outside here to see you. And what are, we, what are we going to do? I mean, we're done for. They're going to kill us. And Elisha knew that his, this, this servant needed a new perspective. He's, Elisha, totally calm. Why? Here's what happens. So we answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I believe that's God's word for us tonight, to remember in whatever battle you find yourself in, whether it's a battle in your marriage, maybe it's a battle just in how you're feeling and dealing with the circumstances of our day, maybe it's a battle in your career, maybe it's a battle with your kids, whatever it is, and you say, man, I just don't know. Can I go on? Here's, here's what God wants you to know, that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And anytime you find, man, I don't know, I'm going to give up. I, I don't think I can do this. Here's the thing. And you need to write this down. Write it on your hand. Write it on your phone. Write it somewhere. Put it anywhere you can see it. And you need to remember this. 
those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the moment that we start believing that, the battle is one step closer to being one. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that reality that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The Apostle John would say, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So God, do that work. You want to do great things in our lives and you want to do great things through our lives. God, help us to take up the shield of faith and do difficult things for the kingdom. And we prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.